The following is an archived podcast presented by the Branson and Hudson Foundation for Podcast Recovery. This podcast is entitled Pulling the Chair with Dunk and Keys. This is the first and only episode of the podcast. Welcome to episode one. Welcome to Pulling the Chair with Dunk and Keys. I'm Dunk. He's Keys. Say hi, Keys. Hey, babe. How's it going, everybody? You know, it's going good so far. Uh, this is a first episode of this show, and uh, what we're here to do is really just give some credit to the guys in basketball who don't get enough, right? And this is a real treat for me because I've been wanting to talk about these guys for a while. You know, this episode is going to be on the 2004 Detroit Pistons. Some would say the greatest team of all time, the hardest working team, the blue collar team. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm excited for our guest today. Um, his name is Chade Lalopin. He is a journalist from the Dwajic Inquisitor. Dwajic. Dwajic. It's the Dwajic Inquisitor. You know, okay, well. Dwajic. You know, he's got a pretty good accent for a guy from Eastern Europe. I'm, I'm American. Well, uh, moving along. He is the author of Consider the Penguin, the Chauncey Billups story. So he's really the perfect guest. Hello, Jade. Um, Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. It's, it's really great to be here with you guys. Uh, it means a lot for me to be able to tell the story. And that's what this is all about, is the story. I consider myself a gatherer, a collector of stories. And that's what this is all about. You better like a troubadour, would you I say? I would call myself a troubadour, yes. I'm very glad that you used that word. Yes, that's exactly what I call myself. And I, I get upset when people do not call me a troubadour, so I, I thank you. You know, I don't know. Let's no just problem. Keep, let's just stick to English words, fellas. I, I, I ain't from around there. All right, let's keep <laughs> it moving, guys. You can't talk about the 2004 Pistons without talking about how 2003 ended. What are you guys' thoughts on that series against the Nets? Well, the only way, you nailed this on the head, the only way to truly tell this story is to begin at the end of the beginning, of the end of the 2003 season. And clearly, there's one central character who really took it to the 2003 Pistons, and we all know who I think I know who you're talking about. Well, why don't we all say it on three? One, two... Three. Brian, Brian Scalabrini, right. the White Mamba, exactly. the Red Menace, the himself. White Mamba. Never has anyone slithered on the hardwood so um, insidiously with such malice. He's a sinister imp. Imp. Such a combination of speed and strength and agility. He was almost fluid throughout the court, just executing perfectly. I, I remember watching that series, and they passed it to Scalabrini, as they were wont to do, and he just caught it and immediately got in the perfect triple threat position. I was just, oh, knees slightly bent, holding it, ready to shoot, pass, or dribble. There was no way of stopping that guy. He had three things. He could only guard one. Now, this is, yeah, yeah. This is a well-known thing amongst troubadours like myself, but um, when I say that Scalabrini was a slime ball, I do not mean that he was a bad person. I mean, he was literally a very slimy man. And that's part of the reason sweaty. they did so well, is the ball would literally be covered in green ooze. And uh, the Pistons, you know, they were a hardworking team, but 
They were used to the, the grit and the dirt and the grime of garages. They were not used to this sticky, um, viscous substance that would come off of this mamba man. Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, Brian Scalabrini, on top of his pure athleticism, which you hardly ever see, you know, once in a century, uh, Brian Scalabrini was just probably the most in-shape guy I've ever seen play the game. I mean, that's like... Total stud. Talk about a goal body. Total stud. Uh, The thing a lot of people don't realize about uh, Scalabrini, too, is that he shaved his body completely. His armpits, his eyebrows, everything. Because he didn't want anything soaking up the sweat, right? To be fair, David Stern also did step in and said, hey... You you need to shave all of that or you cannot play. Well, because naturally he's a very hairy man. And when you shave all of that, he was just like an infant covered in Turkish massage oil just going down the court. And it was the era of hand checking. They couldn't get their hands on the guy. Just He just popped right through their arms when they tried to give him a big old bear hug in the lane. You know, you can't, and the, the Detroit Pistons were used to hammering people and getting in there. And you just can't hit a guy if he's that slick. It's a smooth player, smooth player. So they ran into Scalabrini, and Scalabrini, you know, demolished them. You Thoroughly know? dismantled the Pistons. To the point where they had to look at head coach Rick Carlisle and think, you didn't have any plan for that. You didn't maybe have perhaps Chauncey Billups cover his hands in sawdust to get his hands on him, and maybe that'd get him some more, you know. Maybe some kitty litter some or something. Some kitty litter like. they could throw. They didn't have any of that planned. So Scalabrini torches they, them, and they look at Cal- Carlisle, and they say, you know, buddy, you got to go. Hit the bricks. Hit the bricks. You got to right? get out of here. We're here to win championships. This is the Motor City, baby. And so they brought in a tiny little meek man. Possibly the coach. smallest coach of all time. At four foot six, they brought in Larry Brown, mm, the who foreman. became the foreman of this team. Ninety pounds. Ninety pounds. Here, he weighs. <laughs> and, they, and they brought in Larry Brown, right? And immediately, he needed to assess the team, right? Well, so let's wait, go. There's a there's a nice little. Um, anecdote about this the first time the team met their new coach of course um it's tradition nba not to tell anyone who your new coach is um until you're having practice and then he walks in through the the doors right he he ceremoniously marches through those double doors right and of course you have the the 2003 um pistons now the 2004 in the off season they're you know hanging out in center court and um larry brown Comes in, he's four foot six, all of 90 pounds, soaking wet, which he was. It was raining that day. It was raining very hard. Um, And he said, I might not be the biggest man here, but I am still the biggest man here. And they respected him for it. They really did. Um, I believe, I remember um, Ben Wallace was telling me about that practice, right? And this small little man comes in soaking wet and tells everyone he's bigger than him, right? And there's just silence, odd silence, until, you know, Mehmet Okur picked up Larry Brown and put him on his shoulders so that he was the tallest man in the room. And everyone was clapping. Everyone was cheering. They were so happy to see this tiny, tiny, despondent man celebrate. The foreman wearing 
uh, hard hat came in, you know, and he's 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 tells everyone he's the biggest man in the room. He was actually known after that to sort of drive around Mehmet Okur by pulling on his ears which ways he wanted him to go. And that's the sign of a good coach. If if your if your players are willing to do that for him. You know, if you can control your players cognitively and mentally, that's one thing. But if you can physically tug on the ear of a large Turkish man and get him to go where you want, that is power, that is control. So let, let's talk about Okur a little bit. And I want to go here and I want to we're going to go through all the starting where, players. Where else to start with the 2004 Pistons? But, but Mehmet, Mehmet Okur. Okur. Mehmet Okur was the heart and soul, if not definitely the heart of that team. Everyone loved Mimut. He was a large, you know, um, lumber-footed Turkish man who was constantly getting into predicaments. He was constantly stepping on rakes, and they would hit him in the face. Um, In his Turkish accent, he was known, Chauncey Billups would play a prank on him, where he would put a bucket on his head. And Mehmet Okur, every single time without fail, would ask everyone in his heavy Turkish accent, who turned out the lights? And everyone would laugh except for Mehmet, who then Larry would come over and explain everything to him. Um, another f- so that was your start and Another famous um, anecdote to add to that story is Rip Hamilton, being the, uh, the ball handler that he was, would often um, dribble underneath Okur, right, uh, to which he would often say something along the lines of, um, which way did he go? Which way did he go? <laughs> Mehmet Okur actually broke a lot of ground in the NBA because he was the first NBA player to have difficulties with object permanence. A lot of times if he would get turned around, he'd be looking and wondering what happened to the basketball game. And usually during that time, Larry Brown would have to, like, hit a big two symbols together to get his attention. It, you know, I, I remember going to the games that year, and I remember uh, looking around me. Every time I'd go to the, one of these things, you know, everyone had to have their jersey, you know. You had to be – I had to have one that year or, or else you're nothing. So even these young kids, guys, wives, girlfriends, all had them. And every single person I'd look at had a Mehmet Okur jersey. It was the most popular one. I, I think they sold, like – 60% more occur jerseys that year than anyone else. Oh, easy. It was, a, it was crazy. Fan favorite. Fan um, favorite. And the symbols really caught on with the crowd. You would walk into um, any Detroit Pistons game, home or away, and there would just be symbols just everywhere. Um, to the point where, honestly, it just became incredibly confusing it, to even be in the building. It actually caused a lot of problems for occur because people would be hitting them all the time, and he'd basically... Uh, constantly be spinning around until right, he would have right. to sit down and little yellow birds would be tweeting around him and he'd actually try to grab them. And almost mm-hmm. every time that Everyone happened, they'd be... have to call a timeout. The Pavlovian, Pavlovian um, conditioning and taken hold by then, so he would just start spinning and spinning. Yeah, it didn't matter where it came from. All right, let's get into uh, uh, another guy, big guy. Let's start with the front court since we're going that way. Let's talk about Big Ben Wallace. Oh, Big Ben. Oh. Named after that famous clock in England, Big Ben himself. Now, Burton, Burton, am I mistaken? It's in Manchester, right? I believe uh, he was your favorite player at the time, correct? Well, he was was my favorite piston, I would say. I wouldn't say he was my favorite player. We can get into that later, but 
Ben Wallace was most certainly my favorite player on the Pistons. And I think the main reason I really liked him was because of that iconic afro he sported that everyone loved. Everyone would wear afros to the game, and someone would be uh, crazy rainbow colors, kind of like a clown, maybe implying that Ben Wallace is a clown. Yeah, kind of yeah, disrespectful, yeah. but it was all I in good think fun. It did that. I mean, that would be a, 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 a sin in Detroit at the time who absolutely loved the working class quality of their Pistons. Well, remember, this was 2004. Ben Wallace had the first Afro. This is true. true. He definitely kind of pioneered. And the thing about Ben Wallace, the thing about Ben Wallace, and I I believe um, Jade can tell us the details about this, but Ben Wallace, every single morning, had a very unique routine, but it never changed. Would you like to tell us about that, Jade? Yes, this is a, a beautiful anecdote, and I think it applies to the overall gestalt of the 2004 yeah, uh, Detroit Pistons, and it, it really it really follows through with um, with what Larry Brown brought to the team. Um, ben Wallace, a large man, but um, no, for enormous. as large for as large as he was, he even had a larger heart. Um, and every morning at 5 a.m., he would creep out of his bed where his feet hung over by at least you know two or three feet. Um, he would kiss his sweetie on the cheek. He would tuck her in. He would tiptoe through the kitchen, not turn on the lights. He would pull out his white bread, ham, and American cheese sandwich, put it into his metal lunch pail. He would tiptoe past his children's room, blow a little kiss, and he would go out, stand on the corner with his hard hat, right? He was a construction worker along with Rip Hamilton, and he would wait for the 32 McNichols bus, Right? there in Detroit. And for a while, this bus actually was running a massive detour thanks to construction. And we'll get into this later, but this is part of the reason the Pistons actually struggled early on was Ben Wallace's bus route was just not working for him, unfortunately. You know, the Detroit Pistons were going along with the just complete working class nature of them. They were the first championship team where all the players took public transportation to work every single day. And, and a and lot of times each player, you could be each player also worked a, another job or held another position in some organization as right. well. Ben Wallace was very active in the carpenters union. You know, he worked out there. He busted his ass every day. He would come in covered in sawdust <clears throat> to the practice court and Larry Brown would have to chase him out sometime, make him go rinse off, <clears throat> you know, and then you got Ben Wallace, great player. And you got to talk about his construction worker, uh, a coworker. Rip Hamilton. You guys want to talk about Rip? Rip Hamilton. Not only co-worker, but someone might um, even call them, they would refer to each other as comrade. Comrade. Oh, definitely. Partner. You know, by the end of the season, brother. Brother, absolutely. And not in the 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 black guy way, just in like the actual brother way. Well, I don't don't know if you need to make that distinction. Well, I'm sure I was thinking it, so I'm sure other people were thinking it. It doesn't matter. Well, Donk, Donk, we can can talk about the site. Let's move along here. All right. Now, now, when we talk about Rip Hamilton, we need to talk about his iconic feature, which is, of course, his... Of that, yes, of course, his mask, right? Now, um, a lot of people 
Um, and especially the Detroit, Detroit Pistons fans, you know, they started wearing masks to the game. It was it was part of who he was. It was part there of was his identity. There was a brick identity. resurgence of Phantom um, of the Opera on, Bro- on Detroit's Broadway, famous Broadway Street in yeah, Detroit. Yeah, famous Broadway in Detroit um, actually brought that back. He actually did the lead role a couple of nights, um, even nights he where was there was made games. For that he role. would, you know, double down. He was made for that role. Beautiful voice. Um, but not everyone in the NBA was psyched on this mask. Um, it scared some. It scared some, in particular because they thought it, it um, possessed supernatural powers. Now, I'm quoting here, mm. so forgive the language. Perhaps we can edit this in post. Um, but Kevin Garnett of the Timberwolves at the time was quoted as saying, that using that fucking mask turned my nigga Jim Carrey fucking green. Wow. Strong Actually, words. that that believe it or not, that is that's the a great censored movie. Quote that is th- before they started censoring it, but it's just you can't trim fat so much to the point where you got no meat left. Kevin Garnett's a strong man of strong words. I think we can all agree on that. And he <laughs> he did mince his words there. He did. Do you think? Do you think he was implying The Mask is a bad film with that quote? I think what he was implying Uh, is that Rip Hamilton had powers given to him from Loki, the um, Norse god of trickery and deception. Now, this god was known for wearing a big yellow blazer and and smoking a cigarette down in one puff, and he was known... Big he was zoot known suit. for seeing you know, a woman I, and having his heart beat out of his chest and then turning for a split second into a horny cartoon wolf that slammed chairs on the ground at her. And, and the, now, that's interesting you say that because I have never seen this um, movie of which Kevin Garnett spoke. Um, however, I was in the locker room. The Rocky Dennis story? Times, it's really good. And um, And as Rip Hamilton was getting ready... He would put on his mask and he would put on an oversized yellow blazer and he would spin around furiously several hundreds of times, it seemed, pirouettes over and over again. And he would yell, somebody stop me. And I, I just thought it was a thing that Rip Hamilton well, can I, did. Can I ask you but. something here? Now, when he would yell, somebody stop me. Was that because he needed help to stop spinning? Or was it more of a metaphorical, somebody stop Ooh, me before I do something crazy? He would, he would stop his spinning on a dime and uh, flamboyantly put out his hands and sort of do the jazz hand things and menacingly look at everyone in the locker room and say, somebody stop me. Well, he, he was like begging them well, to and stop I think him. The reason, I think the reason that Rip Hamilton wore that mask was not for physical protection even, but... He was giving us all a message that we can all relate to. You know, we all we all put on masks in our own lives. And even when we go to work, which is what he was doing, he was going to work and he was wearing a mask while he does it. And I think that's something that speaks very true. So let's 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 uh, let's move along to the three position and uh, talk about the youngest member of the Detroit Pistons, Tayshawn Prince. Mr. Prince. Oh. The Crown Prince Prince of Detroit. Now, he was a rangy young man. Little slick guy. 
And he was mostly, you know, he got on the Pistons actually through an apprenticeship program, right? He thought he was, he went to, he was, uh, he thought he was applying to be an apprentice at um, Rashid Wallace's construction company, but the paperwork got all mixed up. And next thing he knows, he gets mailed a uniform. He shows up to the stadium. He goes, I'm the new guy. And you know, Never want to complain. complain. Never want to complain. And you know they tested him, right? They made him haul all the lumber. Um, When I say haul all the lumber, the Detroit Pistons did. They did their own repairs to the stadium. They made him fetch all Mm -hmm. the water. They said, hey, new guy, and stuff all the time. You know, shower time came around. He got all the rat tails he could ever imagine. But, you know, it's just a training thing. All the Detroit Pistons did this to become one of the boys. This is an interesting moment in the history of this team because they actually could not tell Chauncey Billups that um, Tayshawn Prince was actually an apprentice. Otherwise, they were positive that Billups would have Chauncey walked. Chauncey was, yeah, um, he was very adamantly against any type of, you know, unpaid labor. Right. And we'll get into that a later, later bit, but I, I don't, I just want to say that's an important side note that a lot of people aren't aware of in the history of this team. So you kind of wound up there on the team um, by sort of chaotic chance, or some might say it was fate, which is funny because his name's Prince, and it's a total Cinderella story. This young kid gets on the team of his dreams. You know, he's looked up to these guys his whole life. Well, you, we got to say that all right five the players with them. born and raised in Detroit. And staunch Protestants. They were the first all-Protestant lineup, all born and raised in Detroit, homegrown kids, staunch Protestants. Tayshaun Prince more, was actually an altar boy. They say he was twice the altar boy he was um, in comparison to his uh, small forward abilities. Right, he was a great um, small forward. Wow. Great small forward. Even better uh, altar boy. Legendary, legendary altar boy. And you know, all, all of the players on the team would go to service every Sunday, um, with their relatives and their, you know, their grandmamas and whatnot. Yeah. And that was just, that was one of the things that kept them together as a, that bond. They were sort and of I'm, a family then. Tayshawn Prince is still a virgin. I wish I could share, uh, the experience that I had when I got to see Ben Wallace singing his baritone voice in the choir, just booming and ringing through there. And Tayshawn Prince's falsetto <laughs> just piercing through. Uh, Beautiful. I'm getting choked up just, I, just you bringing uh, that up again. Oh, my and God. And, you know, during that Christmas pageant, little Larry Brown playing Jesus right there in the thing, <laughs> lying down, with his arms outstretched, ready to become the king that of kings. the sweetest thing you've ever seen. The sweetest thing you've ever was, seen. Larry Brown all swaddled in white cloth. And that... And that service was famously held in the Palace of Auburn Hills, where they also played their game. But they thought, this isn't a game. This is Christmas, and it's all about Jesus. It's a time for family, and it's a time, you know, to be humble, not to kind of try to upstage the Lord with um, the sin of basketball. I do think, I will say, in that performance, it was a little strange that Mehmet Okur did play every stable animal um, at the manger. He did a great job. You've never seen a llama spit that far. He did a great job. I'm tearing up right now you know, just thinking of the performance. He got on all fours, they, spitting up they a storm. They just demanded so much from him. I, I, felt, I felt for he him. He was a horse. He was in character. He was eating an apple, you know. And it, it was just like 
the range this guy has. Holy moly. And and when Rip and, Hamilton you know, came out as was, the little as the little drummer boy and the way he as the ox kept time. You know how at the birth of Jesus that little drummer boy shows up. And he's just pum pum pum. Pum pum pum. He's killing it. Yes. And and that's why around, you know, from then on, of course everyone in Detroit saw this. So when Rip Hamilton would run out, they would all go pum 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 across the stadium. And even though it was a Christmas pageant, it was amazing because the stands were packed and everyone was still wearing Detroit Pistons paraphernalia and going nuts and applauding at everything. And, you know, the scoreboard was keeping track of all the good bits and how everything was doing. And anybody hit a high note, they would play, you know, let's go, Detroit, let's go. Right. And, you know, and it was Christmas Day. It was the most beautiful Christmas Day I, you know, I've ever been, you know, proud to witness. Mm-hmm. When they brought up the offertory gifts, you know, the, the wine and the bread to be converted into the, the body and blood of Jesus, the announcer appropriately hit the button, from downtown. And I just, I thought that was just wildly perfect. It, it was, was amazing. Tasteful. It was well done. When they, when they did the classic, that famous chant that began with that team, the Detroit basketball. And it was the, it was... Rashid Wallace playing God himself. Rashid Wallace as God will go down um, as one of the greatest theatrical performances I've ever seen personally. Um, I, I don't think it'll ever be top. I mean, I now, think he was nominated into, for a Should Tony. we get into when the Detroit Pistons acquired Rashid Wallace and what he meant to oh, the sorry, team? Oh, sorry, gentlemen. We're jumping the gun a bit here. We still got to talk. You know, we're still talking offseason, guys. So, so that's our roster. That's Let's true. get into it. Um, Larry Brown gets there, four foot nine, played Jesus, uh, four foot six, sorry, four foot nine, 90 pounds. And he played Jesus, right? And Foreman, the foreman himself got the team going, right? And he came in and he told this team, I want you to play defensive basketball. You say that nowadays to guys in the, in the league, right? Who are the, who are the top superstars in the league nowadays? You know, Steph Curry, um, you know, Gil- Gilbert Arenas and these guys with their soft hands. Paul Zipser. I don't want to play defense. Oh, Paul the Banner Zipser. You go to Chicago, you look up there, they got a banner of Zipser hanging, right? Uh, Jordan sweating over him. You can't go anywhere in the town without seeing Paul Zipser. You got, you got guys like Zipser and Gilbert Arenas who would absolutely refuse to play Larry Brown basketball, right? We need you. Squatting down, getting I low. I think Kevin on Durant defense, would probably tear up. Getting ready to strip the ball, fighting, fouling, hand checking, getting no, giving nothing for free. They always said there's no layups on a, on the Larry Brown team. If it has to be, we'll rip the glass down. And that was the year where um, they both they had um, both Carhartt and Dickies begin sponsoring them and making the yep. uniforms. Yeah, they, they, they had the first all denim uniforms, but they also when they wore the Dickies uniforms, they they had the first they, flame retardant uniforms, which is important later on. <laughs> we'll get into that later. We'll get into that later. We'll get into that. Right. Right. Let's move it along. Let's right, just say so the, the Pacers. Let's just started. say the Pacers series gets heated. Let's just say that. Right. <laughs> Boy, did so it they ever. started off and. People had big expectations for this team, right? The calluses on their hands took a while to develop, right? 
And they started off just as a borderline 500 team, not even sure about playoffs. And they had to keep grinding and grinding upwards, right? And people kept saying, you got to believe in this Larry Brown system. And sooner or later, pulling doubles, the defense, baby. The defense started clicking. Tayshawn Prince was also known to be a busser at uh, Dave and Buster's. And he, on his off days, would he'd work double shifts and he would, you know, a lot of people truly. No one, a hard, no one, hard worker, truly. He and, never talked about this in interviews, I mean, this but all of the money he made was donated to Children's Hospital. All of his money he made from from, truly from Dave and Buster's. All the ticket, all the extra tickets he won at Dave and Buster's, he also donated to the Children's Hospital, which is just sweet. And they couldn't use them because they're and sick and dying the food in the hospital. That but didn't get eaten. He donated to the Children's. They said we hospital. can't do anything with these tickets, but thank you. Thanks for the half-eaten hamburgers, Tayshawn, because they knew his heart was in the, pl- the right place. They didn't tell him they couldn't feed him to people. And that, I mean, Tayshawn Prince is just a good boy who doesn't want to see anything. Now, following that, he had to leave that job um, due to the, the, you know, the increase in the season and the frequent traveling they had to do. But that led right road games were especially difficult. That led the Pistons to form the first union in basketball. You guys want to talk about that at all? Right. The basketball union was founded by um, the Detroit Pistons, who just kind of got sick of seeing all their coworkers busting their ass for no benefit. There has never been a player who is as pro-workers' rights as Chauncey Billups. Yeah, you people... I mean, the amount of Marxist theory that guy has read... You guys... He'll talk your if ear you people, off. you listeners, if you're listening to this right now and you you work your ass off every week, part of my language, but you are working and you want that weekend off to spend with your family or to go golfing and do whatever, you have the Detroit Pistons to thank for the weekends in this country. Now, you have the Detroit Pistons. The to thank 2004 for the Detroit Pistons week. are responsible for weekends. Now. Billups being this sort of more uh, collectivist-minded individual early on in life. Have you heard this story before? I'm not sure. I, I, you might have mentioned it in your book. Could you go of course over it a little bit book. for our listeners? That would be insane to not include it in the book. Um, it's, uh, I haven't read it yet, but... So when he was about seven years old, uh, Chauncey was a precocious child, um, and he was, he was aware. He, he had a very early existential crisis. And he was sitting there on a park bench in Detroit, of course. And um, there was a bar across the street from him. And he, he was just kind of watching it. And as a seven-year-old, he sat there and he saw three 12-year-olds w- try to walk into the bar. And, of course, he said, these 12-year-olds aren't getting into the bar. And, of course, as you'd expect, the bouncer said, you guys are 12 years old. Go away. And he said, well, I guess that's the end of that. And he saw them. And they walked into the nearest alley. And they found a trench coat. And then one by one, they stacked on top of each other and put the large trench coat around them. And they walked into the bar. And the bouncer said, oh, hello, sir. How are you doing? Have a good day. And Chauncey, Chauncey was just flabbergasted by the, the way that these three individuals were able to work together as a team, as a collective to better their own lives, to enrich their own lives by stacking on top of each other and three wearing twelve year olds an oversized yeah, three trend. twelve year olds yes. stacking on top of each other is what Detroit's all about. It it really is. 
I can't think of a more apt metaphor than three 12 year olds putting on an oversized trench cart and walking into a bar. <laughs> now, was it a tr- duster? And I assume they had a nice matching hat as well. You think it was a, a like nice a dress, uh, a gentleman's dress trench coat? Or you think it was like a leather duster, like a biker might wear? Well, I, 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 I heard this from Chauncey himself, so maybe, you know, as many years ago, he said it was a brown duster and a big old brown fedora with a big old feather coming out the back of it. Wow. I mean, I would let that individual <laughs> into my bar. I mean, you would. I would never assume that somebody dressed like that would be 12, three 12 year olds stacked on top of each other. But, you know, the funny the thing is, the funny thing is, kids, is that right? the funny thing is, is uh, Chauncey was that young. Little did he know that one of those 12 year olds was Larry Brown. <laughs> that's I, I think that's implied <laughs> in the story. Yeah, he never got any bigger. He never got. Well, I'm just making it clear for our listeners who aren't uh, yeah, so as savvy. This is, this I would is say where, as you, Chade. <laughs> this is where uh, Chauncey's penchant for the working man and for unions and so forth um, came from. And uh, once during high school, um, I'm not sure if I mean surely you, gentlemen, as wise um, um, Steve Dunk. I've, you of course know what this is, but an isolation play, when you kick the ball over oh, to yeah. your to your one or two, and everyone else goes to the other side of the court, allowing him to have uh, an isolated one-on-one play. And um, disgusting. In in well, especially to Chauncey in high school, the coach uh, called for an iso play to Chauncey. Um, Chauncey promptly called a timeout, and using his uh, organizational skills, organized a sit-in with both teams and the cheerleaders. Against this call, this play that his coach had called, um, and the game just stopped right then and there. No players, no work. Think, right? No work, no game. And you know he won over that coach, of course. And then the new rule was: every play, every player touches the ball, or or we don't shoot. Wow. So let's uh. So now we're we're. we're we're here in uh, middle of the season, right? And Detroit's looking to make a push. They're finally starting to look like they're getting their stuff together. They're getting the good D in there. Now, this is the streak where, you know, they're holding teams to under 70 points, something that's unheard of in basketball nowadays. I don't think people would believe that that ever happened if you told them now. A lot of people, even now, question the existence of the 2004 Detroit oh, yeah, they Pistons. Say they we'll never tried to justify them as a chupacabra kind of swamp cloud dream that wasn't an actual thing. Yeah, you know, like the Holocaust. And there's recruiters the out there who know that that team happened. All right. Now let's go, let's go on to, to what they needed to get to the final push. And this is the really the final piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. And I gave the farm for this guy. The proverbial Volshawn coming together. Wallace. Um, and the last final piece was Rasheed Wallace, yes. Rasheed Wallace is just great, great Detroit Piston himself. Born now and raised. Over, born and raised in Detroit. They got another Detroit boy. Now, the way that and they, they actually traded so much for this guy. They had to trade away. And this, this is just a, a, a bizarre NBA trade. They traded four Dodge Challengers, five Chevy Camaros, <laughs> and... Three Pontiac Firebirds or Rashid Wallace that year. And, I mean, that's well, just, just a currency. And I will tell you this. That'll tell you this about, about, about the working class spirit of that team. 
the Dodge, one of the Dodge challengers was Chauncey Billups. The Firebird was Tayshawn Prince's. His grandma actually bought it for him. And the Camaro was Rip Hamilton's. But he didn't need it anymore because he would just turn into a big tornado when he put the mask on and go somewhere really fast. Right. Now, um, so that just shows they're willing to put pitch in. Ben Wallace really wanted to uh, give up his uh, Kia Sorento, but his wife actually needed that to get to her work. So, you know, Ben Wallace never had a car. Right. Everybody. He rode the know, bus. Do, everybody knew what Ben's situation was that year. You know, right. his wife needed the car to get to work. So it's like people would try to help him out with rides and stuff, but he was too proud. Well, Larry Brown would often, you know, he'd say, come on, Ben, let me give you a ride. And uh, he would sit on Ben's lap so he could see over the steering wheel. Uh, and well, and Ben and Larry, Larry Brown, Brown before games were known to... Um, give rides to the homeless to the game so they can go and watch every game. They did this as an act of charity. The Detroit Pistons would usually have the 13th slot on their roster be given to a local homeless person. Well, there's a one game to a couple day contract. And that explains why Kid Rock was involved. Right. Kid Rock was a Detroit Piston for two weeks while he got back on his feet. Well, there was also now, I will say this about um, when when Larry Brown would pick up um, Rashid Wall or Ben Wallace. Um, and this is another guy that was crucial, crucial to getting Rashid Wallace. Joe Dumars, the GM at the time. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Ride to jo- Joey, the games, the do man by going to Larry Brown's house, picking him up. And Larry Brown would sit in the motorcycle sidecar that of Joe Dumar's motorcycle. And they'd have Ben Wallace sit there holding with both hands, Larry Brown, like the seatbelt. And that's how they got to most games, even on the road. Right. Um, Joe Dumar's the GM was known for traveling people... with the team. Um, and he was also really known for, he you would never see him. He loved the game. He was a very jolly man. Um, never saw him without that classic, iconic bottle of, or glass of scotch and that big old cigar on the side. And they would say, sir, you can't smoke in here. And he would just laugh and laugh and laugh until they started laughing, too. And he would continue just smoking and drinking. Smoking Joe, they called him. They wow. called him Smoking Joe Dumars. The thing about Joe Dumars is that he orchestrated that Rasheed Wallace trade mainly by just kind of going to other teams' games and trying to talk to their players, which was wildly illegal. But he developed a strategy that technically wasn't illegal, where he would constantly go to players he liked, and he goes, that guy looks like a Detroit Piston. Until the other team would have to... That guy looks like a Detroit Piston. And remember, they got him from Atlanta, and no one loves muscle cars as much as Atlanteans, right? I mean... They, oh, they love, love their Camaros the only place they like them more is in Detroit. The only, that's the only place. They can, Atlanta considers Detroit the sort of holy grail, the sort of um, holy land, you know, that, that from whence all these cars and, and glorious metal steeds come from. So the trade might seem a little bit lopsided today. However, at the time, I believe Detroit was able to make that deal. And it's good they did. Clearly, the results show for themselves. Oh, when Ben Wallace, when when Rashid Wallace uh, learned he'd been traded, right? He had a flight booked in twelve hours, and he's like, "I'm so excited to be a Detroit Piston, my hometown team." 
that I can't wait for this flight. So he got on one of those railroad push carts and pushed himself all the way to Detroit, Michigan. And you know those all railroads. The way, and, and on the way, Joe Dumars was get, doing a motorcycle ride, right? And he's riding around with Larry and Ben. And he's, they just like to go after games to kind of unwind. And they, they see had this jackets. lone shadowy figure <laughs> on a push cart going heave ho, heave ho, heave ho, going down the railroad about to get to Detroit. And Joe Dumars looks at him and says, that guy looks like a Detroit Piston. And little did he know he was. And this is the fateful night meeting that people speak of because um, at this time, uh, around this time when they drove past him, Rip Hamilton, wearing his mask, ran by at incredible speed, leaving flames upon the road. Um, They just all happened to be, you know, there's a theme of fate following this team, um, which I think plays into their religiosity and and just the overall story of this group. But it's it's everything like the, seems to the, kind the of have kind this of uh, Quaker sense of predetermination, right? This serendipity just seemed to constantly um, saunter around the team. You know, and, you know they th- the thing is that was the pivotal moment acquiring Rashid Wallace, and that was the moment where the Pistons really figured out who they were because that led them into the playoffs. And, you know, the season rounded out. They had a good, they were the third overall seed, right? They're coming strong. Everybody's afraid of the Pistons, right? So who do they get in the first round? It's well, the Milwaukee well, Bucks. Right. And um, Now, that wasn't much of Bucks a series, if time, you ask me. I agree. Um, by this point, the Pistons were literally firing on all cylinders, no pun intended. And a powerhouse. well machine. Them. Yes, yes. And um, they were a regular Dodge Challenger. They were all loading the coal into the burner while the other ones were jumping comically up and down on the bellows, <laughs> just feeding those flames. And they blazed right through the bucks. <laughs> they were right hemi with with sexy chrome exhaust coming out the back and white walls and fuzzy dice hanging from the mirror. They had those flames on the side. They had that white leather seat and yet that little they had eight a ball on the gear shifter. On the back they of were the a silhouette guy of a wearing sexy jean overalls, driving a Model T car through a crowded street, drinking beer out of a mason jar. Well, I don't know about that one, but um, anyway, the playoffs. They were an, they, they, yeah, the Bucks tore through, um, or, or, or they, they tore through the Bucks, only losing one game because, uh, you know, Michael Red can shoot a bunch of threes and they play little frivolous basketball and sure, they can have their one game, whatever. And they ran through them like an orc through a chain link fence. Well, remember, that was the game that Tayshawn Prince actually was attending. Uh, he was, he was a working um, with his church at a bake sale and uh, was a- unable to make the game. So um, they were not at full strength thanks to Tayshawn right. Prince trying to help out the local animal shelter. All right, yes. let's, uh, let's, let's go on to the next series. They ran into their old rivals, the old rival, the Red Menace. Oh, Brian Scalabrini. Brian Scalabrini. Oh, white And the Mamba. New Jersey Jets. No. Nets. We know we talked about Brian Scalabrini just a little bit. And, uh, well, I think we said a lot about him. Um, 
But th- this time, I think they were ready for him. Well, there's nobody else worth mentioning on that New Jersey Jets that team. Right. And I think... And they come back, and this I time they're, they're ready. ready for him. They know what you to know. expect. They got their sawdust in their pockets. They're ready to counter the slime. Um, the 4-2-40 speed of Brian Scalabrini mixed with the power of a steamroller, they were able to stop him by working as a team. And Larry Brown's now, system also, was actually revolutionary This was the famous moment, the famous moment where um, early on in game one, uh, slimeball Scalabrini, you could see it, he just has that ball just dripping with green ooze. And he looks over and he dribbles by and Rip Hamilton quickly strips the ball from him. And you notice that he had his hands in his pockets right before. And he had, what did he have there? Of course, sawdust. Sawdust. They learned they to counter this slimeball snake with something from their own jobs that they sh- they are proud of. And the workers of Detroit Arena just erupted. And yeah. they knew. I mean, a real David and Goliath kind of had this look in his eyes, right? Like, like, oh my God, my reign of terror is over. I'll never get another NBA MVP. And so the net, they ran through the nets. On to their march of glory. And by defeating Scalabrini and the rest of those jokers, which really it was just kind of like a one-man team, they get on well, the, to the, I, I remember, a team that I they I remember despise. just the, the headline after that series. The, I remember it said right in the Detroit Free Press in big, bold black letters, the slug has been salted. And they knew, that would tell everyone, everyone knew exactly who they were talking about. The the artistry of that article, uh, where they drew perfectly (laughs) Scalabrini's face as a dried up slug, um, really, really drove that story home. It was was an incredible defeat, and it was a great (laughs) win. So um, they got it, and moving on. Uh, Dunk. Let's go to the next series. Now this team, the Indiana Pacers, were another rivalry team with them, right? Now, right this there, south of heated. them in Indiana. And this team's identity was actually kind of similar to Detroit's. And that I feel like that made bit, that yeah. an all-out slugfest. Mm-hmm. There was a kind um, of meta game going on during this series, uh, meta. right? Where <laughs> game one, uh, uh, game one, you know, the Pacers showed up to the game six hours before tip-off, Right. And so at what time do the, do the Pistons show up next game? Seven hours before tip-off. By the end of this mm-hmm. series, both teams did not leave the stadium and were sleeping well, on cots. They, they started bringing in their own sleeping bags, and, you know, they would play fa- flashlight tag with each other, and, you know, they'd do truth or dare and tell ghost stories and whatnot. Um, but, you know, sure when the game time came around... Oh, absolutely. Chauncey, ever the fatherly figure who cares about, he did not care just about his teammates, but also the livelihood and the well-being of their rival, the Pacers. Um, but it, by, by the time the game came around, all that sort of boyish camp attitude, um, you know, of, of towel whipping each other when you're naked and sweaty, um, all that sort of fell aside when the game came around. And, you know, that's a really, really, really um, 
almost Greek Spartan-like image of these of these hmm. bodies, these men just tangling into each other. Think you had this this the sex symbol of Reggie Miller and oh, uh, just boy. this 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 Adonis of a man, um, just just towel whipping Chauncey Billups supple just little butt. Reggie Miller, who just looks like a big sexy Marvin the Martian, and you got all these guys. <laughs> all just kind of showering and being together and, you know, but at the end of the day, kind of hating each other's guts. Well, and, you know, you had some young ones on the team like Tayshawn Prince, who Chauncey Billups had to, had to, at the middle of the night, going, stop talking, Tayshawn. Stop talking. We get bedtime. We got to be up early. Tayshawn would always try to get something. And he's got to be Well, Tayshawn just kept asking, do you guys ever think I'm going to kiss a girl? And everybody was like, Tayshawn, you're an altar boy. You know, you got to be thinking about your duties in the game. You can wait till you're married. Now, uh, Still not married, ironically, as, as, as much as this camaraderie came around, you know, between, you know, outside of the game, between the Pacers and the Pistons, uh, Tayshaun Prince's chase down block on Reggie Miller that saved the game is just one of my favorite NBA plays of all time. And I think Al Michaels said it best when he called the play, and I'll try my best to describe it. Reggie Miller gets a steal uh, about ha- half court. Now, Tayshaun Prince is, actually has to turn around. So he's got about um, a quarter of the court to catch up to Reggie. And, of course, it seems like it's impossible. And in these long, striding, um, uh, stag-like steps, gazelle-like steps, he leaps and blocks the layup very clean and goes off into the stands. Now Michael says, wow, look at that dipshit go. And I just think he just captured that essence so well. And the, the crowd went crazy. And I think that's the moment where Tayshon stopped being a boy. And he became a man. Became some a people man. say he, lo- he, right some there, people say he lost the jokes, his a lot of the teasing. virginity in that moment to Reggie Miller. That was a, that was a, I mean, a lot would agree. It was an incredible moment in that series. But I think there was one moment that surpassed it that we all remember that happened. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. At the Palace of Auburn Hills. Ron Artest. I believe I know you're talking about. You're talking about when Ron Artest um, came out halftime with a flamethrower attached to his back. Yes. And he attempted to walk up to the Pistons and and torch the entire team. Yet remember, at that time, they were sponsored by Dickies. Um, And so the flame-retardant uniforms actually saved... Their lives. Ron Artis did receive one technical foul for trying to use a flamethrower <laughs> against the entire Pistons bench, um, but it did no harm to them at all. Um, luckily, Larry Brown, who was not wearing flame retardant, was just so soaking wet that he also was unaffected by the flamethrower. I mean, it had also rained that day, and he was just constantly, you know, he refused to, you know, have an umbrella. Part of Larry Brown's charm he made was that he, was, he had bad luck, and so he was usually caught. In, if it was raining, Larry Brown was caught in it. The thing about Larry Brown is many times people would see him in Detroit walking around after a loss, and he'd just be shuffling his feet, head down, kicking rocks, saying, oh, just my luck. And usually after losses, you know, Joe Dumars would know that he was so distraught. Joe Dumars and Ben Wallace would get in that motorcycle and sidecar and just go looking around all of Larry Brown's favorite spots, which Larry Brown they, they would just kind of go to places that sold like Christmas toys and wooden trains or would sell like, you know, 
platform shoes or, or right. usually things <laughs> like that. A few times they had to take him to his favorite place in the world, which of course was Six Flags. Now oh, the problem was getting him on on some of the rides. rides. He, they had to yeah, uh, kind of do like they would do different things, like they did in Lord of the Rings to make it, make uh, Ben Wallace look smaller. So they would just position him further away, and they'd be like, "Well, he's standing next to Ben Wallace, so he must be like a normal sized guy." And they would let him on, well, not realizing you know, he was actually the size of a hobbit. And they would find two twelve year olds in the park. And they would have Larry Brown sit on top of them in a big trench coat. And, you know, they would let him on the rides. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the middle kid usually died because there was only restraints on the bottom one. And the middle kid usually had to go. And, you know, Ben would just hang on to uh, Larry's leg like he was like a turkey leg and just kind of swing <laughs> him around in midair. So, you know, there were casualties. You know. It wasn't a perfect system. Yes. But, you know, it usually got him out of the dumps. All right. Well. You know, Dunk, uh, I don't want to go off time here, but, um, you know, we talked about the the, the series, the Bucks, uh, Slime Scalabrini, and the Pacers. Let's move on to the next series. We know the Pistons advance. Well, the NBA baddies. Finals. The villains. The uh, the masterminds Everything. behind it all. Truly the uh, the Goliaths again. Another Goliath appears after the first one is dead. Um, and he's the bigger and better and meaner and sexier. Um, Shaquille O'Neal? Truly. I, I was thinking of Carl Malone, but yes, also Shaquille O'Neal. Well, I, he's not, neither of those are my the favorite, but you said Los the biggest. Angeles Lakers. Los Angeles Lakers. So we get That's to the right. NBA Finals, and my what is everybody saying about it? Everybody's saying that the Lakers are going to stomp them. It's a free win, right? These Hollywood boys descended from the Hollywood sign in their sunglasses and their fancy hats, and they looked at this Detroit team, and they said, forget about it. At this point, they everyone to do in LA. expected that it would be a battle of the Mambas between Kobe, the black Mamba, and Scalabrini, the white Mamba. And they were expecting it to be like that medical staff of those two snakes kind of spinning around and looking at each other. Everyone was drawing caricatures of Kobe's head, off. sucking each other, like Ouroboros, except two of them. And, well, that's um, not an Ouroboros. That's a circle. It's, not, it's a different symbol. But okay. and, uh, anyway. and two, two snakes that won the head of Scalabrini and one of Kobe, and they were going to watch this epic battle. But Titans. instead, what's this? You have these Hollywood boys, and you have these dirty, messy grease monkeys from Detroit, uh, this working-class crew led by this... Just some ragtag kids. Led by this extreme leftist in Chauncey Billups, and the basketball community was a little bit upset. And, of course, they thought game one would go to uh, the... This incredible team of of Hall of Famers with Shaquille O'Neal and um, Carl the Creep Malone and... uh, Gary Payton, and of course Kobe. Kobe Bryant, Chauncey's well, rival, Luke Fox, I, and the legendary Luke Walton. I would like to mention my favorite player, and I think definitely the star player of the LA Lakers that year, who was who were my favorite team. I would say that Ugh. the top player for me, and I know Dunk, you know this, you disagree with me, but my number one player is Rick's Fox. The I thing just about don't Rick's know Fox, why you want to die on this hill. This seems Fox, absurd. Well, he's not 
he's not my favorite player, first and foremost. First and foremost, he's my favorite actor. Uh, you know, I'm a movie buff. I like my uh, my movies. I go to the movies all the time. Uh, I watch a lot of TV as well. Luckily, I get a little bit of both with Rick Fox. Um, he was on The Big Bang Theory. I mean, that's the, probably the biggest show you can get on TV, right? I'm sorry. He does uh, this every single episode. Every he was, time we talk, he he was in One Tree Hill. Uh, four episodes he was in it. He was in... He was in... He got he's game. 35 okay? years old. I don't know why he's watching so much One Tree Hill. Now, Rick Fox is not only an actor and a probably one of the greatest athletes to ever live, Rick Fox also, impressive enough, is an entrepreneur and a businessman. And he actually has invested He's in the like world of professional gaming. of Rick Fox material. I'm sorry. And it's, this team is called Echo Fox. They, they're a professional esports organization. They play League of Legends, Call of Duty Black Ops 3, Counter-Strike Global Offensive, Just let him get it out of um, Super Smash Brothers, and... Not only does he do all this, but he's also just, I mean, a bona fide stud. Have you seen his body? My Lord. I could go on about Rick Fox for the rest of this, but I also, now, you know, there's other basketball players who've been in movies as well. You know, you got Dennis Rodman. You guys, with Rick can you think Fox of anyone else? And this, this description go, you've had with him, go. you have actually sort of solidified this story of these actors and these entrepreneurs. Um, battling the little actors, battling literal actors, right? Shaq was in the, the often very high ranked in the, uh, American film Institute's highest ranking. I believe it's always top 10. Kazam, um, is always way up there. And directed by Paul Michael Glazer, the great Paul Michael Glazer, who also directed running man. So you had Starsky literal and actors. And I'm sorry. And, and literal mechanics and literal construction workers. It was truly they had an actor the, the for crossroads. The crossroads for America. Yes, their coach, who was, of course, you could t- go ask about that. Oh, Jack Dunk? Nicholson. The, the Zen master. Oh, he's an, he's an L.A. legend, okay? He's yeah. in Chinatown, for God's sake. Uh, the cro- this, 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 I mean... This series can no longer, no better exemplify the crossroads of America between the elite and the the proletariat, right below. And of course, everyone expects the elite to roll over. And of course, game one comes out, and what happens? I mean, they got they got hosed. They got Lakers hosed. got hosed. Now let me tell you this, and to me, this series is about. Not only working class versus the rich. It's about coaching style, right? Now, I remember people were so inspired by Larry Brown. And he had a a funny way of doing things. And he would get everybody in when it was six seconds left. They're down by one. And he'd turn to his guys and he'd go, why don't we win this game? And everybody would, now, yeah, let's win. Let's do it. And they did it. Meanwhile, you got Hollywood Jack who goes, like, said, Kobe, I love you, baby. And just getting Kobe all riled up playing ISO ball. Well, he, there was, I remember uh, sitting right behind the bench for one of those games. And Jack Nicholson, he took, he took Kobe aside. He set him down. He put his arm around him while Kobe was wearing that sweater with the moon landing on it. And he told him, he said, Kobe, you know I love you, right? I've always loved you. And you know, that classic Jack Nicholson, just that edge he has. You know, he, he favored, voice. He really favored Kobe, Kobe because he would bring Gary Payton over, a very respectable defensive player himself. 
and he would pull him over, and he would, and Jack Nicholson would have a a towel over his lap, and he'd say, "Hey, Gary, do you know what this is?" And he would open up the towel, and there would be uh, a nine millimeter pistol in there, and he would just kind of nod at Gary with those crazy eyes and let his sunglasses down a little bit, just kind of look at him, and and Gary knew what it was, and he knew what it meant. Um, and I think one or tw- once I or mean, twice, Jack did use a gun in the locker room, especially after that first half loss. time of game one. Half time of game, game one, one he, he gets everybody in he there. Famously he went in, in didn't no halftime speech, no halftime speech. He just walks in there with his with his famous nine millimeter and just cocks it and just unloads into the ceiling. Boo! 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 And he reloads. He puts another clip in, and then he just looks around, <laughs> makes eye contact with every player. Boo! 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 And I believe he had another clip. Am I right? I, he I, did. I, that, that, that was reported. He did have a third magazine. Uh, can you tell so us he, what happened he then, when he put in the third clip, Jade? He, the, by now, by now the, the, the 9 millimeter is smoking like like a sexy cigarette and he he takes out the second clip he puts in the third clip he looks right at Carl Malone's big weird eyes and he goes boo 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 no one said anything and, and then he it. left and they went out and they lost the game jack nicholson <laughs> i think i mean he wasn't the, the greatest coach <laughs> The saddest thing about this series is that, you know, Jack Nicholson, who was not a great coach, but, you know, his career was cut tragically short because they just had to give him that lobotomy after he lost. You know, the city of L.A. rioted and they they had to just end it with, you know, him getting held down and getting that lobotomy. So that was the first loss. Right. And everybody's like going, hey. You know, maybe these Detroit guys, maybe these slums with their dirty fingernails and they don't wash behind their ears and they brush their teeth once a day, you know, and they eat one big meal a day because they're working so hard. These guys that don't get pedicures and rarely clip their toenails, these big, gross, hardworking guys who wear the same uniforms every single day, maybe these crazy guys got a shot. And, um, and, then and so they lose. The very next game, and what's they everybody lose the very thinking? Next game, and double overtime, and everyone's thinking, "There's the Lakers that we know." You know, there we go. That's it. Um, they always knew that it was going to be Derek Fisher to pull him out of it. That's what he does. He's the Fisherman, his famous nickname. Uh, he pulled them great out nickname. of their out of their hole. It's a great nickname. Hey, he has a catch and release policy. They say, and it's. Oh, and so everyone thought, okay, the series is tied up. Kobe and Shaq, the dynamic duo, are going to come in. Now, this is back to Chauncey here. Um, this is where Chauncey really saw his true enemy in Kobe. Um, Chauncey always saw, and this is back to kind of basketball fundamentals, he saw possession of the ball as literal property. And in Chauncey's mind, all property is theft. Therefore, he shared the ball with everyone. And Kobe, what did Kobe do? He never shared the ball. And so to get inside Kobe's head throughout the series after game two, Chauncey walked up to him, shook his hand, 
and he said, there is a specter haunting L.A., and he began to quote the entire Communist Manifesto to, quote, to Kobe in his ear throughout the game. And, of course, Kobe said, what is this guy doing? It, uh, how do you deal with the, that sort of psychological game? Um, and it, it clearly, clearly affected him. You know, I, I know that uh, that's and, not the only uh, – I read your book, and that's not the only animosity that was going on at that team. Tell me what happened between Wallace and Malone. So after, uh, again, Chauncey, he liked uh, both, he always forced both teams to line up Pee Wee junior high style and slap hands and say, good game, good game, well, he gave good everyone game, a meal good game. Too. Yes, yes. And he, he, they would all say, good game. And every time Rashid Wallace would grab Carl Malone's hand and he, he would look in the eyes and say, you leave my daughters alone, you big weirdo. And they would go on. And of course, it did not deter Carl, but it definitely made him more wary. Um, yeah, Carl Malone was definitely uh, kind of taking that series off the whole time. Because he really had a lot going on in his mind. He, he had multiple. That's what he did. Oh, God. Yeah, guys like Rick Fox who had to carry that team. Rick Fox, Kobe Bryant, they had to carry the loads of people like Shaquille O'Neal and uh, Malone. Fucking Tyler Perry. Shaq was the victim to various um, ploys put on by Larry Brown. Um, Larry Brown was also often fond of Acme products, and he took Shaq's shoes and he would put, you know, uh, axle grease on the bottom of it. So Shaq would run out there after a timeout and he would just hilariously slip from one side of the court all the way out the door of the stadium, you I know, rendering him useless. Would and usually go like, whoop, 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 whoop. that was, yeah, the, 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 and Shaq the sound effects man arms. was always that on was, top of it. He would spin his arms around in circles going, oh, 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 oh. That was just the kind of strategies that uh, Larry Brown, you know, envisioned in, you know, put into practice with this team. And you think about guys like Larry Brown and um, just the hard left ethics of him and his team. You could almost you could almost say that Larry Brown was the Karl Marx of the Detroit Pistons. Okay, and Chauncey Billups was the Lenin. I yeah. I believe that, that I mentioned that in my book. You stole that from my book, so um, that's I didn't that's read your book, I so I don't. And I'd like to, uh, you know, you have a leader like Chauncey Billups. This guy was so beloved by the people that it was such a tragedy and a national loss for workers worldwide. When in 2008 he was assassinated, he was shot and killed dead by far right wing player Allen Iverson. I mean, it's even hard to say at this time. It still stings. Well, and this and goes Alan into... Alan Iverson, the, strangely the, enough, the cult, replaced him on the Pistons. The cult of Chauncey continues on with the mausoleum in downtown Detroit, where some people say he will rise again and that he never died. Well, speaking of uh, black magic, I'd like to bring up uh, um, what happened before Game 3. Um, it's one and one in the series, and right, and Larry Brown feels like you know it's teetering on the edge. You know, what are we gonna do? Can we come back from this loss? And now, um, Bill Lambeer, 
peace be with him, had recently passed, right? And some say that his ghost was still in the stadium. Now, I don't know if this is true, but Larry Brown was saying it a lot, and he was able to, you know, confirm this to the more superstitious members of his team. Mehmet Okur often would go, Well, Larry Brown was a medium. Ghost! And would usually kind of start chattering his teeth and biting his nails back well, and forth that, like a that special Turkish blood. And he actually convened and had a black magic ceremony where he threw Lambeer's ashes into a fire. And when he threw the ashes into the fire, there were rumors that a Bill Lambeer appeared as like an orcish visage in the flames for a split second and said, you're going to play hard. And it scared everybody. And yeah, absolutely. Um, And I remember uh, Rip Hamilton saying, oh, if they have a Zen master, well, we have a necromancer. And he said this to reporters and it was Mm. not covered in the press because everyone groaned. Well, the the reporters also didn't trust him very much at this time because by now the mask never came off. Uh, the giant yellow zoot suit never left, you and know, people, people were, were becoming. Worried. They were questioning his sanity, and questioned they san- his sanity. They should because he was playing out of his mind on the court. He really took over that game because the the Troy Pistons traditionally struggle with scoring, and it was that game, even the third game, where the defense really stepped up, but the offense hit shots, and that was all Rip Hamilton. He was known for inventing some crazy moves there Um, in his yellow zoot suit, which was not regulation, but they couldn't get off of him. He would sometimes, you know, you you can't catch him. There was impossible to catch him. And if you did, he would just start spinning in these this blur of pirouettes. You would he would do things like, um, you know, you would have Kobe dribbling down the court and he'd look at the half court line. And all of a sudden is this, whoa, is this a, uh, a voluptuous, sexy woman? And he kind of let his guard down and he would like kind of have like a little pink perfume line go straight into Kobe's nose and he'd start floating a little bit. And then he'd saunter up close and then he'd lean in to kiss. And by then it was, you know, Rip Hamilton with the mask and like bulldog teeth going, Arr! and he, and you know, just snatch, snatch the ball, his ball away, and then just do two steps in a in a in a space jam dunk. You know how do you how do you do anything against yeah. that? It's it's truly amazing, and that the, again the offense was largely led by Rip Hamilton, um, and and you had Chauncey as the distributor. Uh, but let's not forget to mention the defense of of, of the the rest of the team. That really was what made Detroit Detroit, and. Those those that impenetrable fortress that was the lane, despite uh, the the massive amount of talent that the Lakers had. You know, the Lakers couldn't drive right. on him. Well, Shaq was covered by, you know, Ben and Rasheed did split duty covering him, and Shaq never got in a rhythm. Kobe would jack up forty shots a game as he was wont to do, while his teammates considered a peasant revolt. And meanwhile, the Wallaces were getting closer and closer in sync than ever. You know, they shared rooms and would call each other to match their outfits for the day. Rashid got a part-time job at Ben's construction company, and they were getting closer than ever. And this synergy really showed on D, because it was like they were finishing each other's sentences. Help defense was just defense to them. They always helped out. 
So it's safe to say the rest of the series went Detroit's way, and they ended up winning uh, the series. Game four took it. Game five took it. And and four. And by the end of it, L.A. looked just embarrassed. They looked just like, you know, a couple rich boys with soft hands who lost the girl to the spunky kid, you know? And they're sitting there in their empty Camaro. real working Wondering man. where it all went wrong. Right. Absolutely. Yes. So, um, at the end... At now, this, the series is over. The celebration... Ah. I, this, the series is over. Detroit wins. Jack Nicholson the gets a ecstatic. lobotomy. Jack Nicholson is now lobotomized, and he is a mumbling, bumbling freak in some padded cell somewhere. Um, well, he still goes, goes to the games. To the games. They bring He's him out like we can have Bernie's. It's... But but I mean let's all be honest they he's not prop him at up the and games. move him around with with strings, right? They, well they prop they move him around with strings like he's a marionette. They have somebody wipe the spittle from the side of his mouth. Well, all right, I think that uh, just about wraps things up here at pulling the chair with Duncan Keys. I'd like to first and foremost thank my guest, Chade Lalapin. Yeah, thank uh, you. Uh, You're very welcome. Uh, thank you for having me on, Steve and Burton. Um, thank you for allowing me to promote uh, my new book, Consider the Penguin, the Chauncey Billups story. Yeah, thank you so much for telling us the untold story of the Detroit Pistons in 2004. You know, not a lot of people know about that team. And, you know, I'd, I'd also just like to, you know, promote him as well. Check out his great work in the Dwajek Inquisitor. Um, you can find that presumably in Eastern Europe. It's, um, it's in Michigan. It's it's a it's a small town of six thousand people in the southeast corner of Michigan. I've never heard of that. All it's right, I'd like, like to, to throw it to um, Burton Keys, my co-host. Burton, you got anything to close us out with? Close us out yeah. with? Yeah, I just like uh, to encourage you guys and our listeners to check out um, Rick Fox and oh the new God. series <sighs> called Greenleaf. Wow. It's on the channel called Own. It's new. He really, on, he really just doesn't give up. Disney, he plays Darius Nash. You should see and his And you can see him on there. It's one of his most recent roles. And he is just fantastic. So check Even that out. if you look at, go to like his apartment, he's got just stuff. All right. No, I think All right. That's Thanks, it for me. Burton. Oh, yeah. That's great. Hey, um, well, then this has been the first episode of Pulling the Chair with Duncan Keys. I'd like to thank, thank everybody. Jade and uh, Burton. I am Stephen Dunk Duncan, and I will say have a good night. Have a great one, everyone.